0: Everybody, and welcome back to the show. And hey, what did you think about the new introduction? Anyway, thank you so much for listening and following along, especially if you've been here since the beginning of the show back in January of what? 2020, right? Long time. So I really do appreciate it. So today is October 27th, and we are still in 2021. And I'm coming to you live from the amazing Los Angeles, California. And what great football and baseball is going on right now, right guys? Pretty good stuff. But hey again, if you are still listening, you are now currently listening to season three. This is episode ten and part four of Lost Christian Heresies and that long battle for supremacy. And guys, this is the history of religions and of course, their gods. Whoa, how did that one make you feel? Everything all right? Do you need a minute? Did I tickle your taints? Well, I certainly hope so. But enough of that crap. Hey, I'm your host, the one and only the skeptical ghost heathen, and I am an amateur ancient history enthusiast, as well as a hobbyist of ancient religions and, of course, their origins. And I, too, am a student just like you, with the desire to find the truth. So this show is a result of a 5-year study with a subsequent 800-page essay which many of you have already, you know, already possessed and it's probably in circulation somewhere out there somewhere. You probably have it. So please feel free to follow along with it and enjoy some of the images and the charts that I have provided within it. So why am I doing this podcast you ask? Because you have asked. Because I wanted to create a system of counter apologetics and history how it applies to theology that anyone can easily find that refutes every single Christian and his Islamic argument out there so far. So my intention here is not to convert anyone from their faith, but to assist those who are curious and have questions and want help getting out, perhaps. Or maybe they just have questions about about Christian history, right? That's really about it, because let's face it. There is no arguing with someone who accepts absurdities and doesn't care about historical facts, history, or evidence. As I always say, if your argument requires God magic to make your story work, then you're not serious about wanting to know the truth. So this episode, I call it Lost or Hidden Christian Heresies, part four. What happened to the Ebonites and the Amarcionites? So in this episode, we're going to continue that road reading through um, some of the work that Bart Ehrman laid out for us in his last Christianities. Again, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. Order it. It's a great, fantastic read and full of great Christian history. But in this episode, we're going to take a look at those early first century and second century Christianities that were in direct conflict, as well as competition with the winning sect that eventually snubbed out all of the others and aligned itself with the political powers and ultimately became the most successful and influential religion as of today. But in this episode, we're going to analyze how these three different sects of Christianity differed from one another, and what were their gains, and what were their losses. So thanks for listening, and please share with a friend if you think that they would enjoy the show as well, and please help spread that love. This show is completely commercial-free and available in most podcast forms. So again, if you give me an hour or two, I will give you the history of the world and so much more. So if you're ready for this excellent adventure to begin, please hop in or tune in. Hop in this virtual ride with me and let's go find some lost hidden scriptures that Christians don't even know about. Let's do this thing. Sources dating from the 2nd all the way to the 4th centuries of the Common Era. We know of Christians that would be called Ebionites. We do not know for certain, however, where the name actually came from. The Proto-Orthodox heresiologist, the opponent of heresy that is, Tertullian. Remember, we talked about him a lot. Tertullian basically claimed that this group was named after its founder, Ebion. But that actually seems like kind of a cheap and poor guess, if you ask me probably based on tertullian's assumption that every heresy begins with a heretic who can be named after it there were other heresiologists such as origen of alexandria who we also talked about who was probably closer to the mark when he said that they derived from the hebrew name ebion which simply means poor Now, Origen and other Proto-Orthodox writers had a field day with the name, as you can imagine, indicating that the Ebionites were poor in understanding. They didn't get it. They're all going to burn in hell. But that is almost certainly not what they thought about Ebionites themselves. Possibly the name goes back to the earliest days of the community. It may have, in fact, been members of this group that gave away their positions and committed themselves to lives of voluntary poverty for the sake of others, like the earliest communities that were mentioned in the book of Acts, chapters 2, 44 and 45, chapters 4, 32 to 37. They claimed, of course, that Jesus himself was also poor. Maybe these were poor people who took him seriously when he said that they were to love their neighbors as themselves. Realizing they could scarcely do so while living in relative luxury, while people around them were starving. But in any event, they were called the Ebionites. And by the 2nd century, none of their opponents appeared to have understood why. And since we don't seem to have any writings from anyone who belonged to these groups, unfortunately we can't be certain either. So with this lack of primary source material, it's really sad and it's really much to be regretted. But surely some of these people wrote treaties that advanced their views and defended them as necessary. But as no such writing, you know, survives out there. We haven't found them at this point, probably because they were destroyed. But we must base our understanding on the words of their opponents, just like what we get with Paul, right? Because the church was able to destroy everything that was arguing against Paul, but we only have Paul's responses. So we know what the gist was but sometimes taking their claims with a pound of sand, if you would. Since some of these reports are inconsistent with others, it may be that there were a variety of Ebionite groups, each with its own distinctive understanding of some aspects of their faith. Now, Proto-Orthodox authors clearly agree that Ebionites were and understood themselves to be Jewish followers of Jesus. Now, we know they weren't the only group of Jewish Christians known to have existed at the time, obviously. We talked about them in great detail in earlier episodes. But they were the group that generated some of the greatest opposition to the Proto-Orthodoxy. The Ebionite Christian cult that we are best informed about believed that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, sent down from the Jewish God to the Jewish people in fulfillment of Jewish Scripture. Isaiah 53, for instance, Daniel 9. But they also believed that to belong to the people of God, one needed to be Jewish. So as a result, they instead insisted on observing the Sabbath, keeping kosher, and circumcising all men, boys, and babies. Now that sounds very much like the position that was taken by the opponents of Paul in Galatia. And it may be that the Ebionite Christians were their descendants, whether physical or spiritual but an early source that we have, the church father Irenaeus, also reports that the Ebionites continued reverence to Jerusalem, evidently by praying in its direction during the daily acts of worship. Sounds a little familiar like what we get in Islam, right? Now, their insistence on staying or becoming Jewish, it should not seem especially peculiar from a historical perspective. Because... Jesus and his disciples were all in fact, Jewish, right? But the Ebionites' Jewishness did not endear them to most other Christian um, factions. who believed that Jesus allowed them to bypass all the requirements of Jewish law for in order to achieve salvation, right? The Ebionites, however, they maintained that their views were authorized by the original disciples, especially by Peter and Jesus' own brother James, who was head of the Jerusalem church after the resurrection. Another aspect of the Ebionite Christianity that actually set them apart from most of the other Christian groups was their understanding of who Jesus really was. Now, the Ebionites. They didn't subscribe to the notion of Jesus' Logos, his preexistence from the beginning of time, or even the virgin birth. These concepts were originally distinct from each other, completely isolated, two different schools of thought. However, the two New Testament Gospels that speak of Jesus being conservative of a virgin, Matthew and Luke, who write so late, they do not indicate that he existed prior to his birth just as the new testament books it appeared to presuppose his preexistence as john does in chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 but these guys also never mention his virgin birth at all either either does mark for that matter out of the canon but when all of these books came to be included into the new testament canon for whatever reasons both notions came to be affirmed simultaneously So now, Jesus was widely thought as having been with God in outer space for eternity. Eternity past, I guess, as seen in um, John and Paul. Who became in the flesh, as seen in John, by being born of the Virgin Mary, as in Matthew and Luke. Now, as you can imagine, Ebionite Christians, they didn't have the New Testament to go refer to. Because it was not yet published. Nobody sat down trying to figure out what books should go in and in what order. And they also understood Jesus Jesus differently. For them, Jesus was the son of God, not because of his divine nature or his virgin birth, but because of his adoption by God to be his son. Now, this kind of Christology is, accordingly, sometimes referred to as adoptionists. Now, to express this matter more fully, we have to understand that Ebionites believed that Jesus was a real and flesh-blood dude, just like the rest of us sitting here listening to my podcast. Born as the eldest son of the sexual union of his parents, no other than Joseph and Mary, of course. Now, what sets apart from all other people was that he kept God's law perfectly, and so is the most righteous man on earth. As such... God chose him to be his son and assigned him a special mission to sacrifice himself for the sake of others. So Jesus then went to the cross, not as a punishment for his own sins, but for the sins of the world. A perfect sacrifice and a fulfillment of all God's promises to his people, the Jews, in the Holy Scripture. As a sign of his acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice, God then raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him to heaven to sit at the right hand of the throne. It appears that the Ebionite Christians also believed that since Jesus was the perfect, ultimate, and final sacrifice for sins, there was no longer any need for the ritual sacrifice of animals. Jewish sacrifices therefore were understood to be a temporary and imperfect measure provided by God to atone for the sins until the perfect atoning sacrifice should be made. So as a result, if these particular Christians, these Jews, were in existence before the destruction of the Jewish temple in 70, they would not have participated in this cultic practice. Later they, or at least some of them, evidently remained vegetarian since in the ancient world the slaughter of animals for meat was almost always done in the context of a cultic act of worship so what scriptures did these ebonites appeal to in support of their views what books did they revere and study and read as part of their services for, of worship obviously they retained the Hebrew Bible, the Torah the Old Testament as as scripture but these were Jews or converts to Judaism who understood that the ancient Jewish traditions revealed God's ongoing interactions with his people and his laws for their lives. Almost as obviously, they did not accept any of the writings of Paul. Indeed, for them, Paul was not just wrong for a few minor points. He was the arch enemy the heretic who had led so many astray by insisting that a person is made right with God apart from keeping the laws of the Jews, and who forbade circumcision, which was the sign of the covenant for his followers. Now, did the Ebionites have any other Christian texts that they accepted as part of their canon? Well, actually, not surprisingly, they appear to have accepted the Gospel of Matthew as their primary scriptural source which makes sense because Matthew was the most Jewish forward or observant author of them all out of the four. But this particular version may have been a translation of the text into Aramaic, just like Targums that the author for Mark was using for his source material, for his gospel, right? Which are basically just loosely written translations from the Septuagint. Now, it all makes sense, though, because Jesus himself supposedly spoke Aramaic in Palestine as did the earliest followers of Christianity. So it would make sense that a group of Jewish followers of Jesus that originated in Palestine would continue to cite his words and stories passed down about him in his native tongue. Aramaic, that is. But it appears likely that this Aramaic Matthew was somewhat different from the Matthew that's now seen in the canon. In particular, the Matthew used by Ebionite Christians would have lacked the first two chapters, which narrate what? We just talked about it. Jesus' birth to a virgin. A notion that the Ebonite Christians rejected as well as the epistles and the Pauline letters from the 50s and the 60s. There were doubtless other differences from our own version of Matthew's gospel as well. Unfortunately, we don't really know what the Ebonites called their version of Matthew's Gospel, whether it was something completely different or not. But it may have been identical with the book that was known to some early church writers as the Gospel of the Nazarenes. Now, Nazarene was a name sometimes used for groups of Jewish Christians, of which there were actually several others available besides the Ebonites, especially to the east, especially in the Babylonian Empire. In fact, in the book of Acts, they'll even be referred to as the Nazorians. Now, we also have evidence of yet another gospel authority that was used by some or perhaps all groups of Ebionite Christians. And the evidence comes to us actually from the 4th century writings of a hateful opponent of all things heretical, Epiphanius. Do you remember him? The Orthodox bishop on the island of Cyprus? But in a lengthy book that he details and then fervently attacks, 80 different heretical groups, Epiphanius devotes an entire chapter to the Ebionites and quotes a gospel that they are said to have used. And he basically gives seven brief quotations. Not nearly as many as we would like, obviously, but enough to get a general consensus, a a main idea of this now lost gospel. But for one thing, this particular gospel of the Ebionites appears to have been a harmonization of the New Testament gospels of Mark, Matthew, and Luke, right? So evidence that it harmonized the earlier sources comes in the account that it gave of Jesus' baptism. Now, as a careful reader, careful readers have long noticed that three synoptic gospels all record the spoken words by a voice from heaven as Jesus emerges from the water. But the voice says something different in all three accounts. This is my son, who I am well pleased. As in Matthew 3.17, or You are my son, and who I am well pleased. as seen in Mark one eleven. And in Luke's gospel, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As in Luke 3.23. So what did the voice actually say, if there actually was a voice? In the gospel of the Ebionites, the matter is resolved easily enough. For here the voice speaks three times saying something different on each occasion. Even in some of these anti-sacrificial views of the Ebonites, they also seem to come through in some of the fragments that Epiphanius quotes as well. And in one of them, where the disciple asks Jesus where he wants to eat the Passover lamb with them, as seen in Mark 14, 12, Jesus replies, I have no desire to eat the flesh of this Passover lamb with you. In another place, He says something a little bit more forthrightly, like, I have come to abolish the sacrifices. If you do not cease from sacrificing, the wrath of God will not cease from weighing upon you. So where there is no sacrifice, there is also no meat. Probably the most interesting of the changes from the familiar New Testament accounts of Jesus comes in the Gospel of the Ebonites' description of John the Baptist, who evidently, like his successor Jesus, maintained a strictly vegetarian cuisine. But in this gospel, with the change of just one letter of the relevant Greek word, the diet of John the Baptist was said to have consisted of not of locust meat, and wild honey, as seen in Mark 1-6, but of pancakes and wild honey. It was a switch that may have been preferable on other grounds as well. Who knows? So, this gospel of the Ebonites, it was evidently written in Greek, hence the ability to change the locust word in Greek into pancakes just by moving one letter around, but based to some extent on Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because of the harmonizing tendency that we see in the synoptics, it would have been used by Ebionite Christians who no longer knew Aramaic or who were therefore living outside of Palestine. They would have included the Ebionites' own perspective on the nature of the true religion, hence the condemnation of animal sacrifice, of course, but all the more reason to regret that we have such a scant access to it because of the lost Gospels. But one more Gospel lost to prosperity, I guess, destroyed by their proto-Orthodox victors in the struggle to decide what Christians should and would ultimately read and believe in, But now I want to start talking a little bit about another one that we have some more information about. Another sectarian group of Jews, the Marcionites, which also revealed something very different. Early anti-Jewish Christianity. Living or perhaps existing at the same time, and also enjoying the same unwanted attention of those proto-Orthodox opponents, Those standing just at the opposite end of the theological spectrum of the Ebionites were a group of Christians that were known as the Marcionites. Now in this instance, guys, there's no question whatsoever concerning the origin of the name. Because these guys were followers of the 2nd century theologian Marcion, known to later Christianity as one of the arch-heretics of his day. But by all accounts one of the most significant Christian thinkers, as well as writers, of the early centuries of the church. Now, we are better informed about the Marcionites than about the Ebionites, because their opponents took them more seriously, and as a threat to the well-being and the supremacy of the Proto-Orthodox church at large. Now remember, every time I say Proto-Orthodox church, or Proto-Orthodoxy, we're talking about the winning religion that we know it as of today, right? So as, if I, as I imitated before, potential converts from among the pagans were not flocking to the Ebionite form of religion, which involved restricting activities on Saturday or giving up pork or popular foods and for men undergoing surgery to re- remove you know, the head with their penises off, which is just crazy. Now, the Marcionites, on the other hand, it was a very attractive cult to many pagans, and many converted, probably all of them, because it was openly Christian, and there were definitely benefits to joining on the Christian bus versus just the you know the thousands of other pagan religions that were popping up all at the same time and disappearing at the same time. This one attached itself to a very old religion, right? Christianity did. So it actually had some something ancient to it. Some substance, maybe. But the Marcionite Christianity, there was nothing Jewish about it at all. In fact, everything Jewish was completely taken out of it. Jews recognized all around the world for customs that struck many pagans as just bizarre would have difficulty recognizing in the Marcionite religion as some sort of offshoot of their own. Not only were Jewish customs rejected, so were the Jewish scriptures as well as the Jewish God Yahweh. So from a historical perspective, it is intriguing that any such religion could claim direct historical continuity with Jesus at all. So as you can see, since Marcionite Christianity was seen as a significant threat to the growing and thriving proto-Orthodox movement, the heresiologists wrote a good deal about it, and that's why we know so much. Pagans really were drawing towards Marcion and his theology. Well, the proto-Orthodox were somewhere, falling behind, trying to catch up. So Tertullian, for example, devoted five volumes alone to attacking Marcion and his views. These volumes are primary sources for the conflict to be supplemented by attacks mounted by Tertullian successors, including Epiphanius and Salamis. But one still needs to sift through what is said, because you can never really rely on an enemy's reports for a fair and disinterested presentation, can you? You don't get to see both sides, and all through Christianity, that's what we get, We only get to see their views because everything else they destroyed. And only a small, marginal amount of evidence was hidden away only to be found. And once again, Marcion's own writings and those of his survivors were long ago related to the trash heap. I'm sorry, relegated to the trash heap or the bonfire, if you would. But still we appear to get a fairly good sense of Marcion's life and teachings from the polemical sources that do survive, that were found. So we need to take a look at the life and the teachings of this guy, Marcion, to better understand the conflict between him and the Proto-Orthodox church and the battles that ensued. Marcion was born around 100 CE, in the city of Sinope, on the southern shore of the Black Sea in the region of Pontus. His father was said to have been the bishop of the church there, an altogether plausible claim as it can make sense of Marcion's intimate familiarity with the Jewish Bible, which he later came to reject, of course, as history has proven and his full understanding of certain aspects of the Christian faith from an early period in his life. And as an adult, he evidently was wealthy, having made his money as a shipping merchant or possibly even a shipbuilder. Now, later historical accounts actually indicate that Marcion had a falling out with his father, who proceeded to remove him from the church altogether. And then, as you can imagine, the rumor mill indicated that it was because he had seduced the virgin. Well, hey he's in good company right even the god yahweh did that but most scholars take that as metaphor a metaphorical seduction that marcion had corrupted members of the congregation the church as the virgin of christ because of his false teachings in any event marcion by 139 ce appears to have traveled from its native asia minor all the way to the city of rome which, as the capital and the largest city of the empire, appears to have attracted all sorts, including all sorts of Christians, including the Proto-Orthodox sectarian group. So he made a good impression there, especially in the churches and already one of the largest churches in the world, by donating 200000 Roman dollars for the church's mission. Although recognized for his generosity, Marcion appears to have had bigger designs, bigger ideas. But what would he do? He'd lay low and he worked out his plan over the course of five years, bringing it forth into two literary productions without the Proto-Orthodox fathers even knowing. Now, before we get too carried away in discussing these books, we should start talking about the theology that Marcion had developed, which would seem as distinctive It was also seen as revolutionary. It was obviously highly compelling, and therefore, in the eyes of the Proto-Orthodox fathers, it was dangerous. Among all the Christian texts and authors all at his disposal, Marcian was especially struck by the writings of the Apostle Paul. And even in particular, the distinction that Paul drew in the Galatians and elsewhere between the Law of the Jews and the Gospel of Christ. As we can see before, Paul claimed that a person is made right with God by the faith in Christ, not by doing works of the old Jewish law. This distinction became fundamental to Marcion, and he made it absolute in his religion. The gospel is the good news of deliverance. It involves love, mercy, grace, forgiveness, reconciliation, redemption, and life. Now The law, however, is the bad news that makes the gospel necessary in the first place. It involves harsh commandments, guilt, evil judgment, enmity, punishment, and eternal death. The law is given to the Jews. The gospel is given by Christ. So how could the same God be responsible for both? Or to put in other terms, how could the wrathful, vengeful God of the Jews of the Old Testament be the same loving, merciful God of Jesus? Well, Barcian maintained that these attributes could not belong to one God at all, as they stand at odds of each other. Hatred and love, vengeance and mercy, judgment and grace. He concluded that there must be, in fact, you know it, two gods. (laughs) The God of the Jews, as found in the Old Testament, and the God of Jesus, found in the writings of Paul in the epistles, sometime between the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s of the Common Era. So as you can imagine, once our guy Marcion here arrived at this understanding, everything else just naturally fell into place. The God of the Old Testament was the God who created the world and everything in it, as described in Genesis, of course. And then the God of Jesus, therefore, had never been involved with this world, but came into it only when Jesus himself appeared from heaven. The God of the Old Testament was the God who called the Jews to be his people and gave them his laws. Whereas the God of Jesus did not consider the Jews to be his people at all. For him, they were the chosen one of the other God, and he was not a God who gave laws. The God of the Old Testament insisted that people keep his laws and penalize them whenever they failed, and usually by by killing them or destroying them. He was not evil, but he was rigorously just. He had laws and inflicted penalties on those who did not keep those laws. But this necessarily made him a wrathful God since no one kept the laws perfectly, right? If he's constantly destroying his own people because they couldn't keep the laws right, and there were so many of them, I guess that would kind of make him an evil deity, huh? But everyone had to pay the price for their transgressions, and the penalty for transgression was always death, destruction of their own doings. Now, now the God of the Old Testament was therefore completely justified in exacting his punishments and sentencing all of his people to death. Now, on the other hand, the God of Jesus came into this world in order to save these people from this vengeful, evil God of the Jews, Yahweh. He was previously unknown to this world and had never had any previous dealings with it. Hence... Marcion sometimes referred to him as God the Stranger. Not even the prophecies of the future Messiah come from this particular God, for these refer not to Jesus, but as a coming Messiah of Israel, right? Basically, another wrathful Messiah, as we talked about in previous episodes, to be sent by the God of the Jews to come destroy their enemies, right? The Creator of this world and the God of the Old Testament. Now Jesus came completely unexpectedly, not this messianic um, leader, this warrior that the Jews were expecting, and did what no one possibly had hoped for. He paid the penalty for everyone's sins to save them from the just wrath of the Old Testament God. But how could Jesus himself, who represented the non-material God, come into this material world created by the other evil, vengeful, wrathful God from the Old Testament without becoming a part of it? How could the non-material become material even for such a good and noble cause as salvation? Well, Marcion taught that Jesus was not truly a part of this material world at all, just like Paul imagined. He did not have a flesh and blood body. He was not actually born ever. He was not actually even human. He only appeared to be human with material existence like everyone else. In other words, Marcion, like some Gnostic Christians, was a Docetist who taught that Jesus only seemed to have a fleshy body. And I think that's important to think about and important to talk about because The Christianity that we are sold to today, the Proto-Orthodox sectarian group of Christians, with the life and blood Jesus, right? So most of these other groups, even stemming from Paul, Paul was still pretty much along this alignment with Marcion. That Jesus only wore the flesh temporarily in the perfect realms of heaven to where the copies of the perfect church, the perfect altar were, for his sacrifice to take place. Never actually on earth engaging with historical people at all. And this is going all the way deep into the second century. That this type of imagery of Jesus was taking place. Coming in the likeliness of sinful flesh. As Marcion's favorite author Paul puts it in Romans 8.3. Because Jesus paid the penalty for Everybody's sins by dying on the cross, somewhere in outer space, obviously. But having faith in his death, one could escape the throes of the wrathful, vengeful Jewish God, the God of the Jews, and have eternal life with the God of mercy, the God of Jesus, right? But how could Jesus die for the sins of the world if he did not have a real body? How could could his shed blood bring atonement if he did not have real blood at all? These are questions that would come up. Unfortunately, we don't know exactly how Marcion navigated around that question or how he developed the details of this theory of atonement. Possibly he, like other Christians after him, thought that Jesus' death was some kind of a trap that fooled the divine being who actually had control of human souls that were lost to sin that the God of the Jews would be forced to relinquish the souls of those who believe in Jesus's death, not realizing that, in fact, the death was only an appearance, of course. But once again, we don't actually know how Marcion worked out all of his theological insights. It could have also been just the way that Paul thought about it, which was in alignment with early Jewish Christian thinking, as also seen in, in the ascension of Isaiah, where Jesus is killed by Satan, unknown to Satan, but somewhere in the firmament, just below the moon, not on the earth, dies and goes to heaven and atones for our sins. But what we do know is that he based this entire system on sacred texts that he had in his church. These included, but were not limited to, the writings of Paul. So, So Tertullian indicates, for example, that Marcion was particularly attracted to the sayings of Jesus, that a tree is known by its fruits. As seen in Luke 6, verses 43-44. Good trees do not produce rotten fruit, and rotten trees do not produce good fruit. What happens when the principle is applied to the divine realm? What kind of God creates a world that is just wrecked with pain, misery, disaster, sin, and death? What kind of God says that there is one who creates evil, as seen in Amos chapter 3, 6, but surely a God who himself is evil, that's who. What kind of God brings love, mercy, grace, and salvation and life? A God who does what is kind and generous and good. A God who is good. The God of Jesus, of course. So according to the Marcionite Christians, they believed that there were, in fact, two gods all the way into the second century. The wrathful, evil, vengeful God of the Jews who went around destroying all of his people whenever he wanted. And then this kind, generous, giving and forgiving God of Jesus that Marcion worshipped. And according to Marcion, Jesus himself even says so. Because Jesus explains that no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the old wineskins burst, and both they and the wines are destroyed together, as seen in Mark 2, verse 22. So the gospel is a new thing that has come into the world. It cannot be put into the old wineskins of the Jewish religion, under the Jewish law, under the evil Jewish God. Now, in terms of Marcion's literary productions, he basically had worked out all of his theological ideas and incorporated into his two literary works. The first was his own composition, a book that no longer survives, unfortunately, except in quotations from, of course, his opponents, right? That's what we get throughout all of Christianity. So Marcion called the book of... It's called, actually it's referred to contrary statements, but it's called antithesis. So it was evidently a kind of commentary on the Bible, in which Marcion demonstrated his doctrinal views that God of the Old Testament could not be the same God as the God of Jesus Christ. Some of the book may well have consisted of direct and pointed antithetical statements contrasting the two gods over each other. But so, for example, the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, remember, he tells the people of Israel to enter into the city of Jericho and murder every single man, woman, child, and animal in the city. Right? You can go look it up in Joshua 6 for you um, religious doubters. (laughs) But the God of Jesus tells his followers to love their enemies, to pray for those who persecute them, to turn the other cheek. Right, We get this in Luke chapter 6, 27 to 29. Although written in, in such late Christianity, right, end of the first century, early into the second century. So the religion was obviously changing, and for good reason, right? We talked about that before. But is this the same God Marcion was claiming? For for example, when when Elisha, the prophet of the Old Testament God, was being mocked by a group of young boys. You remember those little fuckers? (laughs) So what did God do? Yahweh? Well, he allowed him to call out to two bears to attack and basically maul the kids. As seen in 2 Kings, chapter 2, 23 to 24. But the God of Jesus says, Let the little children come to me. Again, Luke says this in chapter 18, 15 to 17. Is this the same God? Then the God of the Old Testament said, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Deuteronomy 27, 26, as well as 28, um, 58. But the God of Jesus ordered him, the one who was blessed to be hanged by a tree. Is this the same God we have to ask ourselves? Which one is it? Are they the same? Can't be. Now, as you can imagine, many Christians today might even be sympathetic towards Marcion's view of his Christianity, as one often still hears today about the vengeful, wrathful God of the Old Testament, and in contrast to the loving God of the New Testament. But Marcion... He drove the idea probably to its limits, in a way that many many modern Christians just could not accept. But for Marcion, there there really were two gods in his mind, and that's what he taught, and his congregations imagined the same thing, and he set out to demonstrate it by appealing to the Old Testament. So in this book, antithesis. Marcion shows that he was not willing to explain away these passages by providing them with a figurative or symbolic interpretation. For him, they really were to be taken literally. And so when read, they stood in stark contrast with the clear teachings of Jesus and his gospel that was promoting love and mercy. Now, Marcion's second literary creation was not an original composition, but a new edition of other texts. So Marcion puts together a canon of scripture, that is, a collection of books that he considered to be sacred authorities on his version of Christianity, of course. Now, Marcion, in fact, is widely thought to have been the first Christian to have ever done such a thing, combining a collective of scripture, right? To construct a closed and finalized canon of scripture long before the New Testament that we know that was established sometime in the 4th century, late 4th century. But some scholars think that Marcion's decision to create a new canon may have spurred on efforts of the proto-Orthodox Christians to follow suit and hurry up and get it done. So what did Marcion's canon consist of anyway? Well, first and foremost, it sure as hell didn't include any of the Jewish Scripture, the Torah, or the Old Testament, because these books were written by or for or about the Old Testament God, Yahweh, the creator of the world and the God of the Jews, right? They are not the sacred text for those who have been saved from this evil God's vengeful grasp because of the death of Jesus. The New Testament is completely new and even unanticipated. So Marcion's version of the New Testament, again, just let me make it loud and clear, that was released way before the New Testament that is on bookshelves today. But Marcion's New Testament consisted of 11 books, and most of them were the letters of his beloved Paul and his outer space Jesus. Laugh out loud, right? the one predecessor whom Marcion could trust to understand the radical claims of the gospel. Why, Marcion asked, did Jesus return to earth to convert Paul by means of a vision? Why did he not just simply allow his own disciples to proclaim his message faithfully throughout the world? Well, according to Marcion, it was because Jesus' disciples themselves were Jews, followers of you guessed it, the Jewish God and readers of the Jewish scripture never did correctly understand their master correctly. So, basically confused by what Jesus taught them, wrongfully thinking that he was the Jewish Messiah, even after his death and resurrection, they continued to not understand, interpreting Jesus' words, deeds, and death in light of their understanding of Judaism, not Christianity but Judaism underneath the evil deity of Yahweh. Jesus then had to start a brand new, refreshed version. And and he had to call to Paul to reveal to him the truth of the gospel. That is why Paul had to confront Jesus' disciple Peter, remember that? And his earthly brother James, as seen in the letter to to the Galatians. But Jesus had revealed the truth to Paul, and these others These other guys, they just simply never understood correctly. Now in Marcion's mind, Paul got it. And he understood. That's why Paul was forcing his gospel to the Gentiles. Instead of the Jews. Marcion therefore included ten of his letters in his canon of scripture. Pretty much all of them in fact. Of those eventually came to be even found into the Proto-Orthodox New Testament. With exception to, he did not include the pastoral epistles such as 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, which were blatant second-century forgeries anyway, but we may never know why these three epistles just were left out, probably because they made some sort of claims to an earthly Jesus versus Paul's cosmic Jesus. It may never be known, but probably more likely that in Marcion's time, he was unaware of them. They just weren't in circulation yet because they were such late second-century forgeries. This is probably even more probable as Marcion was collecting his book sometime around 140 of the Common Era. And Paul's letters were written some 80 years earlier, which clearly demonstrates Titus and Timothy were both later 2nd century forgeries. Now, Paul, of course, speaks of his gospel, by which he means his gospel message. Now, Marcion, however, believed that Paul actually had a gospel book that was available to him. During his time. And as a consequence, Marcion included a gospel in his canon as well. I formed the Gospel of Luke, that was written, as we talked about before, probably sometime in between 90 and 100 CE. It's not clear why Marcion chose Luke as this gospel, though. Whether it was because its author was allegedly a companion of the Apostle Paul, which is highly impossible, because Paul was long dead before the author of Luke wrote his gospel or because it showed the greatest concern for the Gentiles in their ministry of Jesus, or perhaps even more plausibly because it was the gospel that he was exposed to when he was a child and growing up. In any event, this gospel, Luke, along with the ten Pauline letters, formed what would be Marcion's sacred canon of Scripture. Even such a short canon, no Old Testament, and only 11 other books, This created a problem, unfortunately, for Marcion, for these 11 books do appear to affirm the material world as the creation of the true God. They quote passages from the Old Testament, and they show ties with the historical Judaism. So Marcion was fully aware of this problem, and he worked hard to resolve it, as you can imagine. But in his view, the reason these books had such passages is not because their authors were deceived into thinking that Judaism was important to the message of Jesus. No, it was only after the authors had produced these works that that these offensive pages had been inserted into the copies of their books later, inserted by Jewish scribes who still did not get it, that did not understand Jesus' true messages. So, in short, and to resolve the problems of this particular scripture that reeked of Judaism, Marcion went ahead and edited those out. He removed everything out that was offensive to his views. So, in the words of his proto-Orthodox opponent, Tertullian, Marcion interpreted his scripture with a penknife. Now, obviously, the proto-Orthodox sectarian group of Christianity Stomped out and won over congregations next to Marcion. So what was Marcion's fate after all? Well, once Marcion had completed his literary creations, he actually strove to have his views accepted by the Christians of the world at large. Every single last one of them, including the Plato Orthodoxy. Possibly that was part of the motivation for his relocation to Rome, the capital city in the first place. Why would you set up shop right next to the largest proto-Orthodox home, home office, right? But it appears that Marcion called a council of the church leaders together in Rome to present his ideas, to present, present his views at, at the first such Roman council of record that we even have. But after hearing what he had to say, we're told that the Roman elders, rather than welcoming his views with open arms, they chose to excommunicate him from the community altogether, refunding his large donation of 200000 Roman dollars and sending him off on his way with his bags. Marcion left the Church of Rome momentarily defeated, but none of the worse to wear and none of the less convicted of the truth of his gospel. So after Marcion packed his bags and basically got excommunicated in the church and was sent on his way, he went back home. He returned to Asia Minor to propagate his version of the faith. And he was fantastically successful in doing so. It worked like magic. We cannot be sure exactly why, but Marcion experienced an almost unparalleled success on the mission field. Establishing churches wherever he went. So that within just a few years, one of his proto-Orthodox opponents, the apologist and the theologian in Rome, Justin, could say that he was teaching his heretical views to many people of every nation. As Justin the Martyr says in Apology, chapter 1, verse 26. But for centuries, Marcionite churches would thrive financially, territorially. And in some parts of Asia Minor, they were the original form of Christianity and continued for many years. To compromise the greatest number of persons claiming to be Christian. When you think about the book of Revelation, it puts a little turn on it, doesn't it? As it was written to the seven churches of Asia Minor. So even as late as the 5th century, we read of Orthodox bishops warning members of their congregations to be wary when traveling lest they enter a strange town and attend the local church on Sunday morning and find to their dismay that they are worshipping in the midst of Marcionite heretics. This all makes sense now, as I just said, when you read the 27th book of the New Testament. The book of Revelation, where the author is writing to churches of Asia Minor, which clearly now dates that book closer to the 2nd or perhaps even the 3rd century CE. Now we should take a look at these two different Christianities, in contrast and competition. And we might do well in this, actually, in our opening move into some of these diverse forms of Christianity of the 2nd and 3rd centuries to consider a set of contrasts between the two groups we have to consider here. Because both the Ebionites and the Marcionites, what, they claimed to be followers of Jesus and through him the, uh, of the true God? Both of them thought that Jesus's death was the only way of salvation and on this they would disagree with other groups such as the Gospel of Thomas if you recall we talked about in earlier episodes. But both of them claimed to trace their views back to Jesus through his apostles. But in most other respects, They stood at opposite ends of the theological spectrum. So here's just a few examples. The Ebionites, there were Jews who insisted that being Jewish was fundamental to a right standing before God. Where the Marcionites were Gentiles who insisted that Jewish practice was fundamentally detrimental for a right standing before God. The Ebionites insisted there was only one God. Where the Marcionites, Maintained that there were at least two. The Ebonites held to the laws of the Old Testaments and saw the Old Testament as the revelation of the one true God, Yahweh. while well, the Marcionites, on the other hand, rejected the laws of Moses and of the Old Testament and saw it as a book inspired by the inferior God of the Jews. The Ebonites, they saw Jesus as completely human and not divine at all where the Marcionites saw Jesus as completely divine, but not human. A little bit more in Paul's spectrum, right? As well as Hebrews. The Ebionites saw Paul with his teachings, justification by faith in Christ, apart from the works of the law, as the arch heretic of the church. And then Marcion saw Paul as the one and only true apostle of Christ. And then last, The Ebionites accepted a version of Matthew as their scripture, without the first two chapters, which shows Jesus being born of a virgin, possibly along with other books such as their own Gospel of the Ebionites. And then Marcion accepted a version of Luke as his scripture, again, possibly without the first two chapters, which shows that Jesus was born along with the ten letters of Paul. So here we have two groups with diametrically opposed views of theology or Christology, both claiming not just to be Christian, but to be true Christians, right? They each all would do this. In fact, the dozens of different sectarian groups of Christianity would also say this, that everyone else was heretical, and they're the true one. This is the true missionary. This is the true Yeshua. This is the true Messiah. That we must follow. All the others are wrong. And everybody was right. But but ultimately, it came to be condemned as heretical, not just by each other, but also by the group that defeated them both. The proto-Orthodox Christians who established themselves as dominant and determined what the future Christians should think about God, Christ, salvation, and of course the Bible. Now, what if it had turned out differently, guys? Think about it. What if the Ebonites had won these battles? Or more like it, the Marcionites, right? Gaining so much territory and congregations, enough to strike fear into the Roman Catholic Church, their Proto-Orthodox Christianity. So from a historian's perspective, with all the advantages and disadvantages in hindsight, it has to be admitted that it is difficult to imagine either of these groups establishing itself as one of the dominant religions, let alone the official religion of the Roman Empire, you know, in the way that Proto-Orthodox Christianity eventually did. Because if the Ebionites had established themselves as dominant, then things would radically be different for Christians today. Christianity would not be a religion that was separate from Judaism, but Just a sect of Judaism, as there were dozens of those as well, not just of Christianity. A sect that accepted the Jewish laws and their customs and ways. A sect that practiced circumcision, observed Jewish holy holidays, such as Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, and other festivals. A sect that kept kosher, the kosher food laws and probably maintained a vegetarian diet. As a sect of Judaism, Christianity would have had its principal issues, all of its battles internally, with other Jews who did not accept Jesus as the Messiah. Anti-Semitism, as it developed, with Christian opposing Jews, members of a different religion, might well have never occurred at all. This would have made it very difficult for Adolf Hitler to carry out his mass murders of Jews in the name of Jesus Christ. It would have been very difficult. What we think of as historical developments from the fall of Christian Rome to the early and later Christian Middle Ages would never have transpired as they did. Nor would the Renaissance and the Protestant Reformation, or the historical development that rose out of a specific set of circumstances of medieval Christianity. One could argue that modern day world would have been totally unrecognizable if one of these other sects of Christianity became the dominant one all of this however it's just speculation but we actually have no idea what exactly might have happened we just don't know whether life in our world would even be better or perhaps worse or about the same but for sure it would have been widely different and at the same time as pointed out earlier it's hard to imagine it happening at all Ebionite Christianity was at a serious disadvantage when it came to appealing to the masses, especially that of the Gentiles wanting to cut off the the end of their knobs, right, and change their dietary needs altogether. It attracted some Jews and some non-Jews who found Judaism appealing, for whatever reason, but such people were never in the majority in the ancient world. The idea of a large-scale conversion to a religion that required kosher food laws and Circumcision seems a bit far-fetched to me, to the skeptical ghost-heathen. Had Ebionite Christianity won the internal battles for for dominance, Christianity itself would probably have ended up as a footnote in the history of religious books and used in university courses in the West to observe what went wrong. In any event, Ebionite Christianity was simply left behind, left behind in the dust, The Christian fairy dust, maybe, and at a fairly early moment in the history of the church, I might add. Proto Orthodox fathers like Irenaeus and Tertullian, they mention it and say a few things about it, scattered here and scattered there, but they do not see it as a serious threat. This is already by the end of the second century. But what about Marcionite Christianity here? Here one could both imagine and argue for real success within Christianity itself. Because Marcionite Christianity was a forceful movement in the early church. And one could readily see why. It took what most people in the empire found attractive about Christianity. Opposed to all the other cults and uh, forms of Christianity that were going on. Well, this one carried love, mercy, grace, wonder. Opposition to this harsh material world and salvation from it. and pushed And pushed it to an extreme. While taking Christianity's less attractive sides of law, guilt, judgment, eternal punishment, and above all, association and close ties with the Jews, as well as Judaism, and then going and getting rid of them all. Had Marcionite Christianity succeeded, the Old Testament would be seen by Christians today as, not as the Old Testament, but as the Jewish scriptures a set of writings for the Jews, and of no real importance or relevance to Christianity at all. So too, Christians would not see themselves as having any Jewish roots at all. Now, this may very well have opened the doors to heightened hostilities, since Marcian seems to have hated Jews and everything Jewish. Or possibly even more likely, it may have led to simply to begin the neglection of the Jews, And the religion would have been considered to be of no relevance at all. And certainly no competition for Christians. The entire history of anti-Semitism might have been avoided completely. Ironically, by an anti-Jewish religion. Once again, other aspects of the history of the West would have been quite different. But it's not easy to see how. Because certainly some of the intellectual tradition of Christianity would have been distinctly different, because the Old Testament would not have been an issue of ongoing concern, and figurative or spiritual or allegorical modes of interpretation might not have been developed within Christian circles, as Marcion was quite the literalist, leading to a history of literary analysts and a set of reading practices that would be entirely different from what we have inherited today. Now, economic and political history might have turned out to be quite different, since there would have been nothing in the sacred scriptures, for example, to oppose lending money at interest, or to promote the system of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, who knows what would have happened to the environment, though, given the circumstances that so much of modern environmental concerns stem ultimately from A conviction filtered through many layers, but with Judeo-Christian roots. That God is the creator of this world, and that we are its caretakers. Different would have been so much of a modern socialism, even, odd as it may seem, so much of Marxism theory, right? As it ultimately is rooted in notions of economic justice, and fairness, and opposition, as well as oppression. to to trace their lineage back to the Hebrew prophets. But once again, it is impossible to know where you would be if the Marcionite Christianity had, in fact, did win all the struggles and the battles, the internal debates among Christian groups. And at the same time, even if the Marcionites had established their supremacy within the Christian cult, it's extremely difficult to imagine them succeeding in becoming the dominant religion in the Roman Empire, The way that the proto-orthodox christianity did this is because of a unique feature that made christianity initially palatable attractive to roman religious tastes and to become ultimately successful of course something first has to be palatable attractive right but unlike today in the ancient roman empire in the ancient roman world there was a wide-ranging suspicion of any brand-new philosophy or any brand-new religion that just reeked of novelty. Now, in the field of philosophy and religion, as opposed to the field of military technology, it was the old that was appreciated and respected, not the new. The Christianity, its novelty, I guess, it reeked of something ancient. Something old. One of the most serious obstacles for Christians in the Roman mission field was the widespread perception. And it was entirely valid that the religion was recent. That it was brand new, right? Like the Hercules cult or something. But nothing new could possibly be true here. If it were true, why was it not so long ago? How could it be that no one, until now has understood the truth not even homer or plato Plato, plato or aristotle for that matter now as you can imagine the strategy that christians had to devise and orchestrate during their mission work in order to avoid these particular questions of christianity being so new and you know a novelty thing this especially when you're trying to convert jews and convert pagans on your mission you know mission work out there It was to say that even though Jesus did live just a few decades ago or perhaps a century ago, hey, the religion that's based on this guy Jesus, it's way old. It's much, much older. Because this religion is fulfillment of that ancient scripture, right? Starting with Moses and all the prophets. Yeah, God told us that he was coming a long time ago. And the religion just happens to be founded in his name. That's the Old Testament, but here's the New in fact, you know, according to this old scripture, the way that, you know, Jews understand it is Moses lived for centuries before Homer did, 8 centuries before Plato, and Moses looked forward to Jesus and the salvation to be brought in his name. Is that where they're selling it? So Christianity it's not a new thing at all. Or of or of recent vintage. Argued the proto-orthodox Christian thinkers. Right, like Tertullian, Irenaeus, So it's older than anything or any Greek myth. And any Greek philosophy or what it can even offer. Actually not true as the Moses character wasn't even invented until closer to the 6th century BCE and after Homer, right? But it is older than Rome itself as an ancient religion. And it demanded some attention, you might add. So by embracing true Judaism, that is by taking over the Jewish scriptures that we talked about before, you know, the Daniels and the Isaiahs and some of the miscellaneous scraps and Psalms, and by claiming them as their own. In that way, Christian thinkers were able to overcome the single biggest objection that pagans had with regards to the appearance of this new religion that was developing within their neighborhoods. Now, had Christians not been able to make that plausible case for antiquity of their religion, it never would have been successful in the Roman Empire, and therefore Constantine never would have stuck every single dollar that he had in promoting it. Right? This is important. But what about Marcion and his followers? Well, they claimed that Jesus and the salvation that he brought were brand new. God had never been in the world before. He was a stranger to this place. There were no ancient roots in his religion, no forerunner, no antecedents. The salvation of Christ came unlooked and was unexpected and is unknown to all ancient philosophy and unlike anything found in ancient religions. So given the reverence that proto-Orthodox Christianity that they had for antiquity, in antiquity, In its quest for ultimate dominance, Marcionite Christianity never held a chance. I think this is a great place to bring this episode to an end and I think it's really interesting and I guarantee you that most Christians don't know anything about this about these other variations of Christianity like there are today but I don't think they had any idea during the first century second century third century fourth century within the first 400 years of the church that there were all these different varieties of Christianity with different ideas on God Good God, bad God, multiple gods, 30 gods, 7 gods. You damn it. Yahweh being the evil deity. A lot of different ideas that were floating around at the time. I think we get that. So when we come back, we're going to talk about one of the other groups and philosophies called Gnosticism. And that's obviously about Christians in the know. And if you recall when we um, did the episode on John, the Gnostic, not the Synoptic, Um, I believe John shared a little bit of these ideas, which also helps us date John because of the Gnostic philosophy. Right? Pretty interesting. So that's it for now. Guys, I thank you so much for listening, and I thank you so much for sharing. And again, um, notice the Q&A on Spotify. Opportunity for you to go in there and answer questions and have um, have your post shared actually on Spotify so everybody can see it when they go to the episode. Um, So anyway, take a look at that, Uh, just another way for us to engage with each other. And I hope everybody, you have a lovely weekend. Today is Sunday, it's Halloween, it's October 31st, and um, I'm going to brew some beer for Thanksgiving. If you didn't know, I'm also a brewmaster. So I'm going to make some pumpkin spice ale. I haven't thought of an evil name for it yet, but we'll come up with one. If you guys think about one, shoot me an Instagram or something like that and let me know. That's a pumpkin spice sale. I'm thinking like Headless Horseman kind of deal. Anyway, (laughs) everybody, thank you so much. And at the end of the day, just be good people and be safe out there. Cheers. This has been a skeptical ghost-taving production.